I'm Margaret Feinberg, and this is the Joycast. Hi, friends. I'm excited you're here for this episode of the Joycast, the hap, hap, happiest half hour of your week. As always, I'm your host, Margaret Feinberg, author of Taste and See, discovering God among butchers, bakers, and fresh food makers. But more importantly, I am also the second place winner of the 2018 Bear Lake Watermelon Eating Contest. I was beaten by my six foot eight husband, Leif, who took first. When it comes to eating, the word grace conjures images of the family matriarch or patriarch offering some sort of prayer of gratitude for the food about to be eaten. Now, in the Feinberg household growing up, we had a slightly different tradition. We'd start and ask, who wants to pray? And the prayers offered might have been short or simple, but they were always from the heart. We might thank God for good weather, or good friends, or the fish that dad caught that day. Americans, though, are not the first ones to say grace before a meal. It actually has roots in the Jewish scripture, in the books of Deuteronomy and Exodus, and it's a tradition that is carried over into the New Testament. Jesus said a blessing before a meal in the Gospel of Luke. Paul offered a pre-meal blessing in the book of Acts. So saying grace is more than a tradition of family, it's also an act of faith. But as our guest today explains, when it comes to the table, grace is more than a prayer. It's a practice. From appetizer to entree to dessert, we are meant to embody grace with every bite. As you'll learn, this looks quite different than you might expect. Dr. Norman Wurzba, is a professor at Duke Divinity School and author of Food and Faith, A Theology of Eating. In fact, he just might be the world's expert on this topic, which is why we are so honored today to have him on the Joycast. One of the most interesting insights he offers is how in a world where we're all busy and on budgets, eating has become transactional rather than transformational. We often find ourselves disconnected from the very food we eat. Additionally, we often seek out the fastest and cheapest options with little thought to where it comes from, how it grows, or how the farmers and animals were treated in the process. I don't do this often, but for this episode, I'm going to make you a promise. After this interview with Norman Wurzba, You'll never say grace the same way again. So pull up a seat at our table and prepare to be challenged and changed. Hello, Norman. It is so good to have you on the Joycast. Well, thanks so much, Margaret. It's great to be with you. Talk to me about what is the high cost of our uh, of our convenient food sources? Well, I think this, this opens up some really fascinating questions about what we understand food to be, right? Food, if you think about it just as fuel or as a commodity, it's basically just stuff that you get, you put it in your body, and you just keep going. But if you are involved in the growing or the gathering or hunting of your food, you know that food is precious because for you to have a tomato all sorts of things have to go really well. 
And if you're involved in the growing of a tomato, you know about its fragility, its vulnerability. If you've ever tried to grow your own food, you know that life is fundamentally a gift. And I think what people want to experience in their food is they want to know that the food that they eat is somehow connecting them to the power at work in the life of the world. And that's hard to do if what you get for food is simply a commodity or something that comes out of a package where you know nothing of that food's history, its relationship to the ground, its relationship to the many hands that have touched it and loved and nurtured it to make that plant grow or to make that animal thrive. It's a fundamentally different relationship. How does that different relationship affect our relationship with God or with faith? Oh my, that's a great question. I mean, if you think about how when scripture talks about uh, food, it, it is almost unanimous in saying that food is a gift from God. In fact, if you think about the Israelites, when they, they go to the promised land, one of the things that God instructs them is to grow their food, but not to try to grow it like the Egyptians did, where they could use power, they could use slaves to try to make sure that they have a dependable food supply. The Israelites have to learn first, as they go through the wilderness wandering, that food is a gift from God. And that means they have to receive it like manna from heaven, or when they're in the promised land, they have to depend upon the rain that comes and waters the ground. Because when we think that food is just a commodity, it's pretty likely that we're going to turn food into a weapon or a tool for our own advantage. And we see that in all sorts of ways in our society today, where food has been instrumentalized to increase a person's status or to shame the bodies of people. Food is not registering as a gift that is to draw us into an understanding about how we live by the grace of God. Instead, food has been reduced to something that enhances our power and position in the world. So what do we do, Norman? I mean, it's a huge issue. I know it, when I was writing Taste and See, it was, and I think we talked about this several times when I got to see you at Duke and things, you know, it, the food and faith issue, it, it's enormous. There are so many rabbit holes and, and it can be, you know, looking at food like I did, you know, in the scripture, or we start to look at ethical concerns or worker treatment, uh, all of these. And then there's shame issues of, of eating disorders. There's uh, food allergies. I mean, it just, you you can write volumes and volumes on just each of these, you know, splinters of this big topic, where do where do myself and listeners begin today, starting to think more intentionally um, without getting overwhelmed? Yeah, and it's very easy to be overwhelmed, and it's also a real temptation to get into the food shaming business, where you go around judging the practices of other people and and the ways that they eat. And I think that's a that's a terrible idea because. Eating is such a personal matter, and it's very easy to really destroy human beings by, by talking about the way their bodies look because of how they've eaten and things of that sort. So the first thing is I, I say just try to remove the imposition of guilt upon people because we're all implicated in a system that's doing a lot of damage. Now, that said, I think a way to start and a way that can do it which, which doesn't immediately overwhelm uh, your listener is to start by asking, what are some of the foods that you eat regularly that you really like? What you do then is you try to find out the history of that food. How did it come to be? Where did it come from? And if you find by doing that historical work 
that there are things about the food's production or distribution uh, that are, are problematic, you can switch to something else. We now have a food economy where there are options and people need to sort of move slowly in the direction of sourcing the food they eat in ways that are more responsible. And this is where I think faith communities are especially important because as a community, you can be talking about this, right? There's no reason why people in faith communities shouldn't be talking about the food that they eat and do it while they're eating together. Because when they do that, they can help each other. They can figure out better practices. And as church folk, they can even use the, the sort of size of their faith community as a way to advocate for change in the places where they are. Right? I advocate for local food economies where the distance between the consumer and the producer are not so great. That's not because it will fix everything in our food economies. It won't. But what it'll do is it'll help people understand where their food comes from, give them a little bit more power and understanding about where their food comes from, and also, I think, do some real good for farmers in the area where they live who want to grow good food. Right? One of the reasons we're seeing so much food produced in harmful ways is because the system seems to demand it. And a lot of farmers, they would much rather be growing food for people that was healthy rather than growing commodities for either animals or, com or commodities to make things like diapers or, for, or ethanol. I love that concept. I know when I spent time um, with the meat apostle in Taste and See, he said, you know, the struggle is, you know, a, a, fa a farmer has to feed, you know, 100, 137 families and can't feed his own. And so that idea of fighting for the farmers, 100%, I'm on board. But, and I, I hear the big concept of what you're saying, but I'm Margaret. I have access to some grocery stores in my town. What does that look like? I, I There's a farmer's market that pops up every Wednesday in my town uh, uh, during the summer for about two and a half months. What does it look like for me to start fighting for farmers in just, in just small ways? Yeah. So my guess is that in various places where your listeners live, there will be a website. Some organization will put this up that makes available for consumers and a, a picture of what the agricultural scene in their region looks like. So for instance, I live in central North Carolina. There are many organizations that make it easy for me to know which farmers are producing what and where they are selling or distributing what they grow. And that, yeah, it takes a little bit of work, but when you, when you discover a good source for your food, like where I get my eggs or where I get my milk, for instance, I tell other people about it. And they then realize, wait a minute, we can buy our stuff from there too. There's no need for us to support a food industry that we know is doing a lot of damage. So as we community uh, communities together discover what are the good places to go, we bring together our shopping dollars. And remember, the money we spend on food is always a vote for the kind of agriculture we want to have. As we consolidate those dollars and put them in, in the direction of farmers and growers who are doing good work, the demand for that kind of agriculture is going to grow. And to show you how powerful that is, if you were to have come to central North Carolina even 30 years ago, you would not have encountered the vast array of small-scale agriculture that is trying to grow food in ways that honors land, plants, and animals and eaters. 
It's exploded over the course of just three decades. And a lot of it has been driven by consumers who want to see better food, better food for their children, better food for their families, better food for their communities. So the power of citizens is really enormous. But what needs to happen is the citizens need to come together and act not just as individuals, but as groups and do the kind of education campaigning, the kind of advocacy for local food systems, the kinds of political reforms that are going to be necessary to make it so that something like small-scale processing of meats can happen in their region. I just Googled, because I was like, how am I going to find these people? And I'd imagine some of my listeners are too, thinking, what, wh- where do I, I literally went to Google just now and I typed in where to find local farmers. And not only did I find a list of my local Salt Lake City, Utah farmers markets, when they are, what, but I found uh, family farms, the localharvest.org and other sites, just like you mentioned, and, and anybody can Google this and start to find places where good food is coming from. There's another issue that pops up in here as far as this idea of, of for myself and listeners, I, you know, I have a limited food budget. I, it's not like I can walk and spend unlimited funds, but by finding a place where maybe I just buy my apples or just get my chickens or just one thing on the menu, if we all did that, that would make an, a tremendous difference. And also recognizing that, that farmer's markets differ in the sense that some farmer's markets, things are a ton more expensive. But I know at my local farmer's markets, when I go to buy butternut squash in the fall for my local farmer, it's it's less expensive than the grocery store. And so it may not be everything at your local farmer's market that's going to be affordable, but you can find those things and begin supporting and reaching out. Yeah, you make several really great points in what you just said, Margaret. So first of all, I would say Don't let the inability to reach perfection be the enemy of you doing something good, right? So nobody's going to change the food system by themselves, and that shouldn't be our hope. Our point should be to try to do better. And better is going to mean different things for different people, right? For people who've got more income, they have choices that people with less income don't. But that doesn't mean that we can't advocate for people who have less income for a better food system so that when they do want to buy better food, we know that the pricing is not going to keep them out of it. And that means that we're going to have to talk about things like food policy, which are, of course, enormous topics. But we have to know as citizens in this country that we've got a farm bill right now that supports and heavily subsidizes agriculture that produces commodities, not agriculture that produces food. And so we end up in this unusual situation where if you go into a grocery store, a bottle of soda is cheaper, right, than a healthy piece of fruit or vegetable. And that's all because of subsidy structures. So we need to advocate for that, for sure. But I also think that one of the the, the jobs of, of communities is to come alongside people who have fewer options and make it more possible for them to do the things that we know are good for everybody. Because when we consign poor people to eating an unhealthy diet and say, well, that's the best we can do because they have to be able to have food that's affordable, we have to acknowledge that consigning people to cheap and unhealthy food is a kind of death sentence, or at least it's an illness sentence, because we know that this diet is making a lot of people sick. And so if we really care as people of faith about the genuine well-being of fellow citizens, which is, I think, clearly mandated by the Gospels, then we have to understand that just as Jesus was in the food business, he 
human beings like us who are followers of this Jesus need to be in the food business too. And that means doing all kinds of things like community gardens about faith communities doing the shopping because in the buying power of groups, there can be a lot more shift in the kinds of momentum around how food is being distributed and how food is being grown. One of the places I see that, honestly, is even in a, a grocery store like Walmart, where I am now seeing more organic options at affordable prices than I have ever seen before. And so you are right. That that communal nature of each of us speaking up and helping and, and, and doing what we can, even if it's just a couple items on our grocery list, can make such a big difference. I, I wanted to ask... One of the things that that I know in Taste and See, okay, so I did all of this research on these foods in the Bible, and then I began to dive into food sources, and I heard some really rough stories. I, I know in one documentary I learned about in China, um, many of the prisoners who are forced into hard labor camps, one of their jobs is to peel garlic um, with, so that it goes in the bottles of of peeled garlic that sometimes we buy at the grocery store and, you know, from China and, and the, they're not given any tools. And so their fingernails actually fall off and are worn off because that's all they have to pick the garlic. And so for me, I learned that and I've made a decision that I'm going to buy fresh garlic. It's inexpensive. I will peel it. Nobody's fingernails will be hurt. Um, feels a lot. It just feels better to me. And yet what I find is sometimes I'll go to you know, somebody else's house to eat. And because of my research, I'll look at what's on the table and my eyes will get really wide because I, I know stories that they don't know. And I, it's not my job to educate them, but I, I, there's this temptation to lose the grace that we're meant to have and to share around the table. How, what advice do you have for myself and others who may be navigating that? Oh my, yeah. I mean, that, that's a great question. It's also a really hard one. I think, I think, let, let's just stop for a minute and think about this exercise that people of faith often do after they've had a meal or before they have a meal. We call it saying grace, right? And and normally for a lot of people, if they still do this practice at all, it's a kind of ornament. It's what we do is to, we say a few words of, of gratitude or a few words of blessing, and, and we do it as an action that we hope will cast a, a veneer, a glow of grace over the food that we eat. Now, that's one way to think about saying grace. But I think another way is to say that for us to be thankful for the food that's on our plate and then to say at the end of that gratitude, the word amen, which means let it be so, that means we're doing a kind of endorsement of what's on our plate. Now, for a lot of people, when they look at the plate of food and they say blessing or they say grace and then they say amen, it's a kind of grace act that doesn't really know what it's doing because how can you be thankful for something if you don't know its history, if you don't know whether or not the food that is there has been nurtured in a way? That puts a lot of stress or pressure on saying grace, I know, but we need to start thinking about saying grace as something like a political and an economic act as well as a religious act. Because when we say, let it be so, that means we're wanting that food that is on our plate to continue to be produced in the way that it is. If we discover that the food on our plate is unknown to us, that means we have to put ourselves in a position where we're going to be a little bit more careful, a little bit more intentional in the kinds of food we put on our plates. And I know this is an enormous exercise. And again, this is why I say, don't try to be perfect. Right? You have to actually be merciful with yourself and with fellow eaters. 
But if, as you start to look at what's on your plate, talk about it. Talk about what, what are you eating? Why is what you are eating so important? Because this is the occasion, not just for us to commiserate about a food system that has gone badly, but it's also an opportunity for us to celebrate the gifts of God that are reflected in so much of the food that we do eat. And I think the fact that human beings now, many of them, believe they do not need to say thank you is already to have repositioned human beings as the ones who do not need to care about the food that they eat. And I think it's that posture that's the problem. It's so true. And I love those words you said, words that we can include in every prayer. And some of may, us may already be saying, but to say thank you and to say, let it be so, just to shake up that prayer closing, to recognize that the grace is not done when we finish praying. It has only just begun. And something we always do here on the Joycast before we conclude is we love to get our guests' favorite recipe or dish. And so I'm curious, what recipe is your fave that you love to make? Well, I've got so many, but one that I love is a salsa recipe that, oddly enough, I learned to make not in the Southern Hemisphere, but in the Northern Hemisphere, in my homeland of Canada, actually in Northern Ontario. It's a salsa recipe that uh, I don't know where it came from. I just know that the folks at this russet farm gave it to me, and it's absolutely fabulous, and I've been making it now for, oh my, 15 years or so. And the reason I love it is that it has a fabulous contrast between spice and sweet. And the secret is to have a little bit of brown sugar in there. And what I have learned is that when I bring out this salsa, people almost uniformly say, how can I get more of this? Because it's it's a really distinct flavor. It's so, so wonderful. And it brings about so much pleasure for anybody who enjoys it. And so that's one of the reasons I love it. Because what I most want to do as a cook is bring gladness to the people who eat the food that I make. And this salsa does it every time. Mm, what a gift of grace. Oh, that sounds so yum. And I know our listeners are going to find it yum, yum too. And the good news for all of you who are listening is we have the full recipe. And all you're going to need to do is log on to margaretfeinberg.com forward slash joycast, where you're going to find the entire recipe, including pickling salt, which is included, and cider vinegar, just giving you a little heads up, uh, as well as all the show notes and the ways to connect with Norman through his writing, speaking, and more. Thank you so much for being with us on the Joycast. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Joycast. If you've enjoyed today's conversation and you'd like to dive deeper into the unexpected joys awaiting you around your table, check out my new book and Bible study, Taste and See, Discovering God Among Butchers, Bakers, and Fresh Food Makers. These resources will help you savor your life, nourish your friendships, and embark on your greatest faith adventure. You can purchase them at your favorite retailer or margaretfeinbergstore.com. If you do, reach out to me on social media or my website and let me know what you think. Until we meet again, bon appetit and amen.